the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things. Put them in your brain. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Funk Radio, a really cool podcast starring us. This is your host, Peter. And this is your host, Kyle. It mostly stars Peter. I just allow him to talk. Yeah. What are we talking about today, Mr. Kyle? We're talking about that thing that everyone seems to want and or need and or not have enough of or have too much of, and that is money. I love money. Oh gosh, what was that line from The Simpsons? It's like, I have three kids and no monies. Why can't I have no kids and three monies? <laughs> so in our research for funk and soul music, we stumbled upon several different songs um, by a variety of artists that explicitly reference money as the main theme of the song. So, I just have to point this out since before we start the show, since we started or starting the show. The the theme that I saw in these songs is they're all usually either talking about people's excessive love of money in a negative way, yeah. or complaining that they don't have money and need it. Right. And yet, a lot of the songs I hear nowadays are that are about money are about how much money they do have. <laughs> it's That's like literally, literally the opposite from 30 years ago. Mm. One of the first Motown songs, I'm just going off the path here, was that song, Money, That's What I Want. Right. And he basically was like, I need money, I ain't got no money. And now all the songs are like, I got so much money, I could buy a grill made out of giraffe. <laughs> I, a giraffe grill. <laughs> I have no idea how that would work, but I'm sure someone has done it. Mm. Like a grill made out of, like, panda fur or something. Um, well, you listeners can tell us on our Facebook page if that's real. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of that is the cultural shift of... How do I say this? Because, I mean, we've talked about this on the, on the show before, how, you know, funk and soul music, it's primarily um, led um, by the African-American community. And throughout the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of social upheaval, I guess you could say. You know, things like racism that kept them from getting the money that, that they deserved, which was equal to, you know, their white counterparts and so on. So there's a lot of poverty and stuff going on for them. Um, as things at least got a bit better in the 80s and 90s and even into now, with the rise of hip-hop especially, um, you have a lot more of what you were saying, Kyle, about, oh, I have all the money. Um, so it's kind of, I guess you could say it's kind of a reflection of African-American culture, more or cool. less. Anyway, I guess we should get started with the uh, songs that we chose for today. Uh, the first song is called Cash in Your Face by Stevie Wonder. We've talked about Stevie Wonder multiple times, and he's one of the most famous musicians of all time. So if you don't know who he is, we encourage you to go look him up more, because we're not going to say everything about him right now. I- I just have one question, and I'm pretty sure you know what I'm going to ask. Um, I'm scared, but go ahead. Why is this song called Cash in Your Face when Stevie Wonder couldn't see anything in his face? Hmm. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't mean... I mean, he could feel it. If there's yeah, money on your face, you could I don't, feel it. I, I don't know if Stevie Wonder conducted his business the same way, but I know, especially when they depicted it in the movie Ray, Ray Charles would have his payments made in, like, singles or fives or something, 
in a small denomination so that he could count it by feeling the roll or feeling the mm. amount of paper in there so he knew how much money he had on him. Interesting. So I assume that was based off of something real. Yeah, because I always wonder that. I'm like, how do blind people know what denomination of bills they have in their hand because there's nothing indicating what it is. Right. So mm. I wonder if they just, everyone just walks around with singles. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so anyway, this song, Cash in Your Face, comes from Stevie Wonder's 19th studio album, which is a lot of albums, called Hotter Than July, which came out in September 1980 for Motown Records. While his previous albums, like, for example, Songs in the Key of Life or Inner Visions, were, I'm sure, undoubtedly equally successful, this one was actually the first of his to reach platinum status. That may be surprising, although I didn't know this, but I guess the reason for this is that uh, Motown's sales records weren't actually audited by the RIAA prior to 1977. Really? So basically through their entire golden age, they didn't keep... Well, the RIAA anyway didn't know specifically what their sales were. And that's kind of weird considering how many dozens of hits they had. Yeah. From the late 50s or even like, or I guess the 60s all the way into the early 70s. Was it because the RIA maybe didn't have as much power back then to keep records of those things? I have no idea. But uh, I was kind of surprised by that. Mm. Anyway. Um, So, Cash in Your Face... Protests uh, racial housing discrimination. Uh, the lyrics tell a story of a smart and successful black man looking to buy a home in a nice neighborhood, but the property owners all basically refuse to let him live there because of his color. Um, kind of an interesting twist on the whole money theme, because, I mean, a lot of them are saying, I don't have money, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. But this one in particular, it's kind of funny because it's kind of the opposite. He's saying, I do have money, I'm successful, but it's not the money that's holding me back, it's the people. I see. I'm going to quote a little bit of the lyrics here. It says, You might have the cash, but you cannot cash in your face. We don't want you living in, in here. So you may have the cash, but you cannot cash in your face. We don't want your kind li- living in here. Before I read these lyrics, I thought they were saying literally cash in your face. But the, oh, they're, but they're actually saying like to saying, cash in, like to cash in a check. Can, yeah, exactly. The, the point of the song is you may have the money, but your color is preventing you from living here. Which is kind of an interesting message in a sad way. I think we should listen to a little clip of Cash in Your Face by Stevie Wonder so that you can get a sense for this theme that we we're talking about. With It's about money, but not really. Okay. Well, I taught the So that was uh, Cash in Your Face by Stevie Wonder, and I guess that gave rise to the term, don't cash a check, your face can't, no, don't write a check, your face can't cash, or something. I thought it was don't (laughs) write a check, your ass can't cash, or something like that. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Some body part, I don't know. I'm just making things up now, because I I never do that on the show. The next show we the next, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we have a whole new show coming up. <laughs> Bye, folks, listeners. <laughs> uh, the next song we have coming up is uh, For the Love of Money by the OJs. And this is probably one of the most 
famous songs on our list, mostly because it was used in that terrible, terrible show, The Apprentice. And that's where I first oh, was remember it? hearing it when I was a kid. That's funny. The song is actually written by Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff of the uh, famous songwriting duo Gamble and Huff, as well as Anthony Jackson, and it was recorded by the Philadelphia soul group The OJs for their album Ship Ahoy. Hey, that's like Chips Ahoy. Do you think the record looked like a big cookie? Yes. Okay, side note, because cookies reminded me of this. You know that famous jazz song uh, by... Uh, Benny Goodman, Sing Sing Sing. Yeah. I first heard that song that I actually remember in an Oreo commercial. Oh, that was. Where it was a bunch of Oreos yeah. playing like a big band. And for some reason, even though I saw that Oreo commercial when I was like eight years old, that song yeah. stuck with me and is like the most iconic jazz song that I know to, to date. And it's insane. Do you, so do you always think of the commercial every time you Yes, hear it? I'm not even kidding. I always think of <laughs> Oreos. What? That's really funny. Six, like... What, 16 years later, I still still think of Oreos. That's really funny. Right? Well, advertising at its best, I guess. That's insanely good advertising. <laughs> or maybe just my warped childlike mind, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, back off of the subject of cookies, which are delicious and tasty, yeah. in the song that Anthony Jackson also wrote, he played guitar, which is pretty cool. The story behind the song is, one day during the fall of 1973, producer-slash-keyboardist Leon Huff was leading the members of the uh, MFSB rhythm section, who we talked about before on the show, mm-hmm. and as well as Jackson through a rehearsal of, the, of their album. And Sigma Sound Studios owner and engineer Joe Tarsia noticed that Jackson uh, had a wah-wah pedal attached to his Fender bass. For those of you that don't know, a wah-wah pedal is a little pedal that you can attach to a guitar or a bass and when you step on it, it changes the sound of the instrument. There's Yeah. There's a bunch of different types of pedals, but Wawa gives kind of that Jimi Hendrix sort of crying guitar sound, if that makes any sense. Um, well, Tarsia saw that he had this pedal, and he decided to run Jackson's bass line through a phaser, which gave it this weird wishing sound that he later mixed in with an echo. So during the final mixing of the track... Uh, Kenny Gamble impulsively reached over and uh, on his big soundboard and pressed the echo button and added the echo to Jackson's opening riffs, which gave it that really iconic sort of opening bass line that makes the song kind of instantly recognizable. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess when you think about that, it's kind of a unique sound. Right? At the beginning. It's weird to think that they, they did so many different effects on top of each other like that. Yeah. Um, and I've thought about that before. Yeah, no, it's it's. It was funny too because speaking of iconic basses, um, you know Larry Graham was actually the bass player for Sly and the uh, Family Stone, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, Larry Graham, while he was bass a uh, bass player with them, developed this new bass playing technique where he would pluck the strings out really far from the, I guess, fretboard, and then slap it. So it'd be ba- he didn't invent slapping the bass, but mm. he did it in this weird way that became very iconic to the, like, the funk, I guess, bass lines that would be used with Sly and uh, Parliament and all those guys. Mm. And basically after he started doing that, basically every bass player that was worth his 
worth its weight was like, oh my gosh, I have to replicate that, and they, everyone started doing it. Huh. Um, so would he pull it away and then like let it snap back? Basically, yeah. He he created that like snapping bass sound where huh. like it's it's less thumpy and more like snapping sound That's cool. that he would combine with the with the bass riffs. So I thought that was pretty cool. That uh, is pretty cool. Makes me want to be a bass player, but everyone knows bass players don't get any honeys. The drummer gets the drummer gets more of them than the bass player, which is sad. I would play bass. I think that'd be cool. Right? You should play bass. We should make a funk band. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> we can call it the Funky Crackers. See, the one thing I liked about when we used to play rock band all the time uh-huh. in college, the one thing I liked about the bass is that not only was it slightly, it was like the guitar, but it was a little bit less hard. Mm-hmm. But also, since it was quieter, you could mess up and not have it be really obvious to everybody. <laughs> That's probably Just, true. Because when you're playing the guitar, it's usually like the main instrument of the song. So if you're really bad at it, then the whole thing sounds awful. Oh yeah. But bass, it, like, bass was easier because if you weren't that good, then it didn't. Really I always, be good. I always hated playing drums in rock band because, as well as I could do the regular drums, I could never coordinate the foot pedal with everything else. Oh yeah, I'm, that, was, I'm basically, that got hard. And I was just like, hit this and then stomp that. And then I didn't have good hand-foot coordination with that with that particular instrument. Yeah. So that's... And we all know what would happen when I tried to sing, so... <laughs> I would basically break the game. <laughs> but yeah, getting getting back to this, this song, For the Love of Money, uh, it was actually nominated for a 1975 Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance. And it, but it lost to the song Tell Me Something Good by Rufus Chaka Khan. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Which is I also a, a very good song, so I, I can't really blame him. I think generally that's probably a more popular... Probably. More remembered song than this one, but maybe not. Probably. No, I, I would know, agree. I, like, I definitely like that song. It's probably one of my favorite Chaka Khan songs. <laughs> so yeah. I think we should listen to a little clip of For the Love of Money so that we can realize how much we love money. We hope you love money to that last song. So what do I got up next, Mr. Prado? We have a song called Poverty by Bobby Bland. If you don't know, Bobby Bland, also known as Bobby Blue Bland, was a singer from Tennessee known for combining elements of gospel, R&B, and blues into his songs. He was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1981. I didn't know this, and I'm pretty impressed, um, but the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame considers him, quote, second in stature only to B.B. King as a product of Memphis's Beale Street blues scene. So basically, he's considered the second best blues guy of all time. Wow. Um, behind B.B. King, which I knew he was big, but I didn't know he was that big, so I give him kudos for that. And That's also, impressive. there's also that album where they play live together. together. Indeed. I have that album. It's pretty yeah, good. It is good. Well, Bland was most popular uh, throughout the 60s. Um, his first chart, first chart success actually came in 1957 with the R&B chart number one hit, Farther Up the Road, on the Tennessee-based Duke label. His song Poverty that we're talking about now um, was not one of his biggest hits but because I couldn't really find a whole lot of information on that one song but interestingly 
it's consistently been included on all of his best of compilation albums for some reason. Really? Even though there's not really much information about it. And it never went farther than number nine on the Hot R&B. So, Maybe it was just and I think song. it was number 60-something on the Hot 100, so it didn't do that great. But for some reason, it's always included on his best of stuff. Well, blues stuff, especially towards the late 50s, was never really like the height of popularity. That's a good point. Because by the, by the late 50s, you know, you had doo-wop, you had Motown, you had... You had the beginnings of Motown, I should say. Yeah. You had Country, you you had Elvis, who basically just stole the blues. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I guess that's a good point. You know, the, you can't always quantify it by the numbers it charted at mm-hmm. and how much money it made. True. Interesting. Anyway, um, wrote down a few of the lyrics again uh, from this song, and just to get a feel for the theme of poverty that he's getting across here. It says, quote, My pay goes down and my tax goes up. I drink tea from my broken cup. Between my woman and Uncle Sam, I can't figure out whose fool I am. I guess I'm gonna die just like I'm living in poverty. That's uh, a happy song. Yeah, the whole song is basically that same mood. It's very sad. It's very blue, would um, you say? Yeah, it, it, it is very blue, yes, actually. <laughs> a really interesting point, though, regarding those lyrics being so sad like that um this is, this is actually i would say one of his more upbeat happy sounding songs really i think that's part of what caught my attention when i first heard it was that it's a happy sounding song but it, the thing he's talking the stuff he's talking about is so sad so um it's it's funny to see that um that difference there that is kind of interesting but, but, well, but the message is still the same bobby bland had some more upbeat songs in his later in his later hits didn't he I mean, uh, once yeah. he started making the transition from, like, blues to straight-up... Like R&B type yeah. stuff, maybe. That's a good point. I don't know exactly what year this song came out. I don't think I could find that. Sad. But, yeah, maybe we could assume this was a bit later. Not sure. Because it's not, it's not um, strictly a blues song, as, you know, you can pretty easily identify a blues song. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have a bit more of an R&B feel to it, so I'm gonna. I guess we can make an educated guess that this was a bit later in his career, sometime in the '60s, probably. Could be. Yeah. Anyway, let's go ahead and listen to a clip of this pretty cool song called "Poverty" by Poppy Blue. So yeah, Bobby Blue Bland, definitely really good. I like him just because he was one of the first artists to really kind of merge blues with rhythm and blues, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I mean, a lot of people would end up doing that after him um, in the 60s, but mm. he kind of helped popularize that. So good for him. He just passed um, away too. I think we talked about that. Oh, that's right. He did. Yeah. Sadness. Yeah, that was a couple months ago. I think just this, la- yeah, just this last year, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's too bad. To answer our question, I just looked it up. Um, poverty came out in '66, so nice. we were pretty much right on the money. Yeah, that's not intended as a pun, but. But I'm bum. Yeah. <laughs> we're slightly accurate. Yay. So speaking of money, uh, the next song we have. <laughs> shut up. The next song we have coming up is again probably one of the more famous songs on this list. Is money? That's what I want. By Barrett Strong. Um, Barrett Strong, for those of you that don't know, is an American singer and songwriter. 
Duh. Uh, <laughs> he was a carpenter. <laughs> he, he was a mind reader. Um, Part-time musician. Yeah. I mean, I meant to say magician. <laughs> Just keep going. Strong was actually... I don't know how we never ended up talking about this before, but he was actually literally the first artist to record a hit for Motown. Nice. Although he was kind of more known... Uh, for his work as a songwriter, particularly with uh, Norman Whitfield, who we talked about before. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know they would work together. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't. I just knew Nor- we talked about Norman Whitfield. Yeah. And I guess among his work for Motown, Strong wrote the lyrics for a bunch of songs recorded by The Temptations. Hmm. So, now, Whit- Whitfield did as well, right? I think yeah, that's yeah. That's when we've talked about Yeah, it. remember Whitfield, we talked about because he came in and kind of changed up the, Mo- the Temptations sound so it was more... So, more went into that sort of psychedelic mm. uh, soul that was popular in the late 60s because yeah. Smokey Robinson kind of was taking him down the doo-wop path, but then Barry Gordy's like, oh, yeah. no, no, that's, that's not, you know, that's not working anymore. So they because Barry Gordy wanted money. <laughs> Shut up, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they brought in Woodfeld to kind of change up the band sound. Yeah. That's when they did songs like Pop Was a Rolling Stone and all that. Oh, yeah. Good Yay. Some, some good funky jams. I can dig it. But yeah, Strong, on top of being a lyricist, uh, was one of the first artists signed by Barry Goat's Motown Corporation, and he, I guess, was the performer on the company's first hit, which is Money, That's What I Want, which reached number two on the R&B in 1960. Hmm. So that's darn old. <laughs> the single was originally released on Tamla, Motown's first label, but then re-released on their Anna label uh, as it was getting more airplay, and it was on the Anna label that it became a hit. Hmm. You know, just to actually, I want to interrupt you for a second. I think yes. it would be, especially Motown, probably more than anything else, at some point, because we haven't really talked about this in depth, it would be interesting to talk about the reasons for, like, sub-labels. Yeah, no, um, that would be a good... Because Motown had probably a good, good dozen of them. Seriously, so uh, did, um, well, not not as many, but Stax had some Stax did, yeah, too. Um, like Volt and stuff. Because sometimes you'll see that a song was released on a label, but then you realize that was basically just some loose subsidiary of a bigger label. Yeah, um, true. For whatever reason, sometimes it was a producer who named his stuff under a different label, but it was still Motown. More money. That's something we should talk about later because, and another time, because I think that's kind of interesting. I can dig it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, this song here, uh, Money That's What I Want, was actually recorded after the fact by a number of different acts, including the Beatles, the Kingsmen, Richard Wiley and his band, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Searchers, and the Flying Lizards, and Buddy Guy, who was a blues guy who was very famous in the 60s. But he was mostly famous for his covers. Hmm. Strong actually claims, like basically to his dying day, is he dead? Let's find out. (laughs) (laughs) The eternal question for us, is he dead? (laughs) Every time. (laughs) God. We're gonna be like Death Note. We're gonna realize that like artists that we're saying are dead aren't dead, and then they're gonna die because of us. Yes, <laughs> he's not dead. Oh dear, I've killed him. Well, I killed Barrett Strong. We Figur- figuratively speaking. Yeah. I don't want to be indicted for anything. Um, <laughs> no, he is seventy-three. He was born in 1941, so he record his first hit was a smash hit when he was only 21 years old. That's, That's pretty impressive. impressive. Although most of the Motown people were basically kids. 
yeah. when they started. So, like but, Michael yeah. Jackson, he was a kid. Very good, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, and he is still living, so he's still probably pro- proclaiming this. He's probably not on his deathbed. Hopefully not. Knock on wood. Strong claims that he co-wrote the song Money with Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford, and his name actually appears on the original copyright registration with the United States Copyright Office. However, Gordy disputed these claims, uh, stating that Strong's name was only included because of a clerical error. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how you have a clerical error like that, but yeah. it's kinda one of those like mysteries that'll go down in the annals of eh, annals. That'll go down in the annals of uh, soul history. I guess so. Yay. Mm. Oh, he wrote. He helped write Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations, so... Papa Was a Rolling Stone, yeah! That's not how it goes. Very good, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, you're not allowed to have Oreos before we record our show. (laughs) You two hopped up on sugar. I love jazz. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so, unfortunately for Gordy, for Gordy, for uh, Mr. Strong... I guess he and Gordy kind of have a difference of opinion as whether as to whether he actually wrote the song. I think Gordy had a lot which, of difference of opinion with pretty much everybody. Yeah, touche. Which is <laughs> odd because I would personally would be the one to side on the uh, on the side of Mister Strong, considering he ended up becoming a very prolific songwriter. So I would definitely say he would have had the talent to write a song like this. Right. Yeah, he gave Mozart a lot of good hits. So yeah, I mean, as a songwriter, so you think they would give him a little bit of credit, but. Oh, well. Well, with that, I think we should probably listen to a little clip of the song Money, That's What I Want by Barrett Strong. Wait, wait, oh, I don't want to do it. Oh, I'm too lazy. I have the song on 45, but in order to play it, I would have to change the belt on my uh, Don't do that. I don't want to do that. Wait, how does it sound if you don't do that? Really fast. Or actually, no, really slow, because it's 33. So it'll be like, money... <laughs> I'm curious to just hear a bit of it before we listen to it in regular speed. Okay, okay. I gotta find it. Hold on. Money, That's What I Want by Barrett Strong. Oh, see, on this on this copy of it, it says uh, written by Bradford and Gordy, but it doesn't say written by Strong. Interesting. Very interesting. The plot thickens. Wait a minute. Before you play it, wait. So, it was. is this a reprint, obviously, then? Is this another um... one? I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. It says, yeah, it says Motown Yesteryear series. So probably. Yeah, okay. It's kind of cool, slow. Okay, so what we've learned from this experiment, any song slowed down from, that's an R&B song is basically just blues. <laughs> Maybe if we just play all of our songs at the improper tempo, we can get away with copyright <laughs> because it doesn't sound the same. This actually sounds really cool at that speed. Why don't 
why don't we give our listeners a, a better clip of the actual speed of this song? <laughs> Money, that's what I want by Barrett Strong. Although I did enjoy that speed. That was pretty cool. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> so if Barrett Strong was just a little bit fatter, he could have made a really good blues singer. Alright, let's listen to it. Okay. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need fun. That's what I want. So, yeah, that was the proper speed of. Uh, Money, that's what I want, as well as the very slowed-down psychedelic speed. Mm. Um, so what do we got up next, Mr. Peter, at the proper tempo? Um, <laughs> before I get into that, I just want to point out that that kind of reminds me of that program we fooled around with a few years ago. Oh, yeah. That completely slows stuff down. I completely forgot the name of it, but it was like a freeware program, and you can literally slow down songs to, like like, a hundred times slower than they normally are. And they sound really, so, like, ethereal and stuff. Yeah. It's really cool. We just, like, slowed down, like, the craziest songs, and they all just turned into, like, this weird trip-hoppy trans crap. Well, it sounded really cool. Yeah, of some of it sounded really cool. I want to say it's also... Was it Paul Stretch? I want to say that's what it was. I don't remember. I just remember uh, that, like, it, it it's, its interface was basically, like, Windows 95 or something. <laughs> well, because I'm seeing... It's also an extension of Audacity as well. No shiznit. I'll have to play with that more later. Wait, wait, it's like a thing... It's like a... You have to, it's One a of plug-in? the effects in Audacity. Oh, hell no. I assume it's the same one? Yeah, Paul Stretch. Um, yeah, I'll have to listen to that. That's a really great way to waste a lot of time trying every song possible. Okay, I can't... <laughs> I, I'm not even going to try to play with that right now while we're trying to do this. Cause... Plus, I have to talk about our next song, which is Money Won't Change You by James Brown. Cool. Which is kind of ironic, because I'm pretty sure money changed him. <laughs> um, so this song was recorded by Brown in 1966 under the Ohio-based King label. Um, it was released as a single, but was also included on his 1967 album, James Brown Sings Raw Soul. Um, James Brown, if you somehow don't know, uh, is the godfather of funk music and is known not only for being a leader in the funk scene and like leading the musical movement, um, but also for his erratic behavior and heavy drug use and jail time as well, because he was kind of insane. We talked about him pretty recently, and I would say in the last episode or two, so I'm not going to go over all of that again. If you if you want to learn more about James Brown, visit your local library. If you don't know him, just get out. Just you don't belong here. So this song, money won't change you. I'm gonna read some of the lyrics. It says, "Quote, told me, darling, that you had to go. Done, take your money. I don't care no more. I know you're happy. Try to get along. Money won't change you, but time will take you on." I couldn't quite get a clear idea of what this song was about because it kind of had some mixed messages. Mm. But from what I can gather, it seems like his woman is leaving him, and he's saying money won't make any difference in your life, but time is going to catch up with you eventually, um, you know, if you keep leaving people like this, like you're leaving me. So that's that's the best that I can come up with. I don't know if you would... It's, it's, it's probably not bad. It's like having money doesn't make you a good person. Throwing money at a problem doesn't solve the problem. 
Yeah, this is this is kind of another example, kind of like um, at the beginning when I was talking about the Stevie Wonder song, how money kind of ties into the theme, but it's not, I don't have money, or I have money. It's basically saying money doesn't make a difference in this situation, whereas, and I think in most cases it does. Kind of interesting. Like I said, I'm not going to go over James Brown a lot, because we talk about him relatively frequently. But we will listen to a little clip of Money Won't Change You right now. Okay. I don't care no more. Although you're happy, try to get along. Money won't change you. Money won't change you. Money won't change you. But time will take you on. So yeah, that was Money Won't Change You by Mr. James Brown, uh, Godfather of Soul. Uh, be on the lookout for there's going to be a biopic coming out about him. I heard bits and snippets about it. Unless his family gets mad and pulls the plug on it. Yeah, don't, <laughs> jinx, don't jinx it. So the next song we have coming up is Money by Love and Spoonful. Now, we don't. I think we may have talked about them once. I'm not a, entirely sure. But they're more of a folk band, but they're still cool, so we're going to talk about them. Yeah. They got their roots in the folk music scene that was based in Greenwich Village in New York during the early 60s. That's the same place that you got your James Taylors, that you got your Bob Dylans, that you got your mamas and papas. One of the leaders of the band, Sebastian, who actually grew up in contact with music and a whole bunch of different musicians, was the son of a much-recorded and highly technically accomplished uh, classical harmonica player. And when uh, Mr. Sebastian reached maturity towards the end of the folk era that spanned the from the 50s to the early 60s, he said, I'm gonna make a band. And they called it Love and Spoonful. Shut up, Peter. And he joined with guitarist Zal Yanovsky, who was from this bohemian folk group called the Mugwumps. And fun fact about the Mugwumps, two other members, Cass Elliott and Denny Doherty, actually would later form one half of the Moms and the Papas. Interesting. Yay, fun fact. They formed this group, the uh, Love and Spoonful, and they would play at like, coffee houses and small clubs, hmm. that whole hipster folk scene. So, cool. that's pretty cool. And arguably, Love and Spoonful was pretty much the most successful pop rock group to have a jug band and folk roots, like, you know, like blowing on a jug. Right. St- straight up folksy crap. <laughs> and nearly half of the songs on their first album were actually modernized versions of blue standards. Hmm. So they did a lot of covers and such in that in that respect. Um, That's cool. Their popularity revived interest in the form of jug blowing. <laughs> and many <laughs> subsequent uh, jug bands actually cite them as an inspiration. So that's interesting. Uh, you were the inspiration for my jug band. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish I had like a soda can with me right now or something that I could just blow into. Wait, I have one. <laughs> I got wet. <laughs> I don't think we should make a band. Peter, I think we need to make a band, but all you can, all you have to do is blow into a soda can. <laughs> it's like that SNL skit with the with the cowbell. Except you just blow into a soda can. Tom. 
What else oh, do you man. know about the Love and Spoonful, Mr. Kyle? I don't know anymore. I just sort of... Well, the rest <laughs> of their albums actually featured mainly original songs that weren't covers, but their jug band roots showed up again and again in original songs that they would write, including songs like Daydream and the lesser-known Money, which we're going to talk about because that's the whole theme of this show and stuff. Uh, Money actually originally reached number 48 in 1968, so it wasn't incredibly popular. It didn't However, even reach the top 48. I know, right? It's too bad. However, fun fact, um, the song actually features a typewriter that's used as a percussion machine of, short, of sorts. Huh, interesting. So they're pretty bizarre in that way. I guess with that in mind, I think we should probably listen to a little clip of this song so you guys can hear the beautiful typewriting percussionist. Feel the money in your ears. Do you think they just got like pulled a random secretary and it's like you're in our band now? You're, what? But you, I can't play. But I can't play an instrument. You can play the typewriter. <laughs> you can't be any worse than the guy blowing into a can of soda. <laughs> So that was Money by Love and Spoonful. Now, and uh, at the beginning of the song, you said uh, we might have talked about Love and Spoonful before. Um, did we? I looked quickly at their discography. I think I remember when we talked about them once before. We talked about their song Summer in the City. That's right. Uh, because I love that When we song. had that episode about summer songs. Yeah, that's right. Which okay. is pretty cool. That's a great song. Yeah. Probably my favorite song by them. Yeah. Them and that, and that song. Do you believe in magic? I'm done. Okay. <laughs> okay, so our band consists of me doing that and you blowing into a soda can. We can't be any worse than Justin Bieber. We're gonna we're gonna have a number one hit. If nothing else, we're American citizens. We won't get deported. Deported. To or or Canada. we will get we will get deported. They'll just falsify our papers because they hate us so much. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, we have one more song on our list for today. And, surprise, surprise, the song is called Money. <laughs> <laughs> How many songs were just called Money? One, two, um, just two. When I looked up this, okay, this is the song Money by Michael Jackson. Now, when I did a search for Money, Wikipedia actually came up with a whole list of songs called, I think they were all just called Money. And they were, <laughs> I think, almost 30 of them by wow. different people. So, money is, needless to say, kind of a popular topic in music. It's, it is it is usually a byproduct of music making, if you don't suck. Like we <laughs> well, do. even if you don't suck, it's not always a byproduct. Touche. <laughs> well, at least maybe nowadays. Although Michael Jackson did make a lot of money. So. Fun fact about Michael Jackson regarding lots of money. He was good <laughs> friends with Paul McCartney, right? He also and, had a lot of money. Yes. And in one of the many conversations they had, Paul McCartney confided to Michael Jackson that a bunch of the old Beatles songs that they recorded in the early 60s were not copyrighted. They weren't owned by a label. So Michael Jackson's like, oh, really? And he went and bought all the songs. Oh. And to his death, owned the royalties to a ton of Beatles songs, and that's how he just he would just take out oh, wow. loans on these royalties, and that's how he kept himself insanely rich. So isn't that kind of a 
dick move to do that to your friend. Kinda. Huh. But he did it. <laughs> Why didn't like McCartney buy the rights or something? Because Mc- I don't know. Huh. I don't know if he like wanted them to go into public domain or wanted to. I don't know what he wanted to do, but yeah, that, I thought that was kind of like I'm like oh ouch. Huh. Yeah. Fun facts. Um, so the song "Money" by Michael Jackson comes from his ninth studio album called "History: Past, <laughs> Present, and Future," Book One. Uh, it was released in 1995, being his first album recorded under his own label, MJJ Productions, but it was distributed by the more well-established Epic label. Um, History was the first album to be released by Michael Jackson since he was accused of child sexual abuse in 1993. Several of the songs actually pertain to Jackson's accusations and mistreatment in the media and the tabloids, so this album was more or less a response to all his negative stuff happening, which is... Interesting. The song's themes themselves included environmental awareness, isolation, greed, and injustice. Uh, Money in particular is kind of believed to be directed at Evan Chandler, who was the father of the boy who accused Jackson of child sexual abuse. I don't really get that from the lyrics at all, but I guess people have decided that that's what it was for. Interesting. I'm not sure. So there's actually two bits of lyrics that I'm going to read. The first one is, quote, Money, lie for it, spy for it, kill for it, die for it. So you call it trust. But I say it's just in the devil's game of greed and lust. They don't care. They do me for the money. They don't care. They use me for the money. Now, when I read that part, it sounded a lot like people are basically just defaming him. Like, for example, the media is defaming him because they get a great story out of it and they make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're attacking him is because they'll get money. And he's saying that, it's, like you said, the devil's game of greed and lust. So they're basically greedy, and they don't care who they destroy if they get a lot of money. But then, not too much later in the song, it says, quote, If you show me the cash, then I will take it. If you tell me to cry, then I will fake it. If you give me a hand, then I will shake it. You'll do anything for money. So it kind of flipped that theme on its head for me, at least. That now he's basically saying, yeah, I'll do it too. If you give me money, I'll basically do anything. So... At first, I thought he was kind of defending himself, but now it's, he's kind of saying, yeah, I'm not any different. I could be interpreting that wrong, but um, I don't know. Fun, More fun facts about Jackson, just because I felt the need to look up about him purchasing the Beatles songs. Oh, yeah. What happened was McCartney originally was offered to purchase this huge catalog of songs from this song holding company called, like, AT, ATV Music or something. Okay. Well, they wanted to charge $40 million for, like, all these songs, but you, when you pay off royalties on it, you end up making a lot more. Mm. And he's like, no, that's too much money. So then Jackson ended up finding out about it and bought the, the rights to all these songs for $47 million, mm. which is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. But it's said here that by the time of his death, he earned about $300 million in royalties from these songs. Wow. So he, his, that was a good investment then. Yeah, his, it said his total estimated like earnings throughout his entire life were $750 million. That's so he wasn't a billionaire, but considering most musicians aren't billionaires, that's insane. Wow. I can't even fathom that much money. Right. Well, I guess you listeners can think about Michael Jackson and all his money while you listen to this song, <laughs> Money by Michael Jackson.
Well, that was the last thong that we wanted to talk about today. Yay! Yay! As we saw, you know, when we were first coming into the, this idea of let's make an episode about money songs, personally, at least, I was expecting more of a consistency in the message for these songs, but I was kind of interested to see how they were all a little bit different. It's, yeah, it's for a song being about something as innocuous as money, there was a bit of a disparity between them, but none of them were really pro-money, which is... Not refreshing. really, no. But I guess, like we said, possibly product of the times, I guess. True. Anyway. Yeah, especially since a lot of these songs came out in the mid to late 70s, and America wasn't doing so good then. Yeah. But the band America was. <laughs> they made money. Yeah. One thing I want to say before I go into our spiel about the Facebook page and all. Something you guys should check out that we've been doing recently. We started a little video series called Block Party, in which we play um, the video game Minecraft, and you are probably familiar with it if you are on the internet at all. Basically, we have little mini-challenges where we try to either kill things or not die <laughs> or, or build stuff or that, that sort of thing, usually within a span of five minutes, so... Uh, we've released, I want to say, three or four episodes so far, and it's been pretty fun. If you go to YouTube, if you go to um, the channel called The Eighth Circuit, um, our videos are listed under there. They're called Block Party. So we definitely recommend that you check those out because they're kind of funny, I guess. You could yeah, say. they're about as funny as two guys, one dressed up as Spider-Man and one dressed up as a kung fu black guy. It's supposed uh, to be Black Dynamite. Can you really think 99% of people are going to get that? No. Exactly. So it's Kung Fu Black Guy. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty much about as much fun as two guys can have in that game. Yeah. Yay. I'm not sure how it is for people watching it, but... No. Horrible. <laughs> it's like paint drying. <laughs> well, it's, it's better than paint drying, I hope. I think this show is more like paint drying. Yeah, If probably. you don't like funk music. <laughs> What is the sound of paint drying? We should just record that, and that could be like our intro. Well, you guys can think about that. And tell us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. And uh, if you like the sound of paint drying, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. <laughs> and if you forgot somehow, we are called Funk Radio, so search for that under the podcast section on iTunes, and you'll find it. And then you can subscribe, and then we can be in your ears all the time. And it'll be awesome. We can live in your ears. We'll, we'll just set up residency. You know, we'll pay rent. We'll clean them out. It's all good. So wait, we have to pay rent and we also clean out people's ears? Well, That's a terrible deal for us. Well, no, wait. Assuming this is our place of residence, we should keep our place of residence clean. We learned this when we roomed together. We, you keep your place clean. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess you'd have to, in a regular situation, you have to clean and pay rent at the same time. Yeah. Even if someone else owns the property. <laughs> no. Peter, next, next... Okay, so when when you get an apartment uh, and you have to talk to the landlord, yeah. you should just be like, so, w what sort of cleaning services do you provide? <laughs> You're going to clean my place, right? <laughs> also, can you pay my rent? I have no money. <laughs> oh, Terrible. That's, that's, that would be funny if it was not true for me. <laughs> God. Well, I guess you'll just need more money. Yeah. 
So yeah, that was our episode on money. Uh, tune in next time for our episode on drugs, and then our episode on sex. Hmm. I'm kidding. But we could actually <laughs> probably do a theme with those three. I think we've done sex one just once or twice now. Yeah. Probably. And drugs we we've should... certainly touched on a few times. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we had a two-part episode on, on Breaking Bad. I think we touched on some drugs. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> um, what other vices are there in the music that we can exploit for our own gain? We already talked about candy as well. I mean, that's basically like... <laughs> Which is totally a vice for adults. <laughs> candy is like drugs hey, can- for kids. Candy crush, so... Well, you listeners can be thankful in the fact that Funk Radio does not cost money, so... I wish it did. Listening to us is free. I wish <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. We don't get any money for this. <laughs> we just do it because we love you, Funk listeners. Pretty much. If we didn't love you, we would probably not do it. And <laughs> if we didn't love you, we would charge you money to listen to us. <laughs> God. Okay. Bye. Bye, everybody. Hope you have money. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.